we've been looking at two different stories in the life of Samuel recently as we've been considering uh, his place in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. And the concept that we've been playing with is this idea that we should have faith to see as God sees. That frequently the things that we sense, the things that we see, the things that we experience in this life may not perfectly pertain to the eternal reality that actually is. The things that we feel may not line up with the things that God knows is truly best for us. And so the first story we were, were considering in Samuel's life is when he's anointing the next king of Israel, the second king of Israel, actually, who is King David. We just watched the video with the kids when David is anointed, and God specifically in that moment speaks to Samuel about the seven brothers that stood in front of him and how none of them were the one that God had chosen to be king. And you might remember that God had spoken to Samuel in verse 7. He says, but the, it said, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when it came to the seven brothers of David before Samuel, right, he's immediately looking to the tallest, the mightiest, the strongest, is thinking like, this is going to be the next king, but that's not who God picked. God instead chooses this young, scrappy sheep herder, the youngest of the brothers, and he's the one that God picks. God was seeking a man after his own heart. God knew whose heart he could choose to be the next king of Israel. And it's not going to be based on the strength or the power or even the wisdom of men through which God accomplishes his will and his purpose throughout the generations. Now, when King David is old, all right, and his son is about to take over, and as he is about to pass on all of this responsibility to his kingdom and the governors and the the generals, he, he calls and summons all of them to gather around him as this old man. And I think he is thinking about this story. He's thinking about when God picked him the least among his brothers. And this story is found in 1 Chronicles 28. And I'll start in verse 9 when he's speaking to his son, Solomon. And so he says, Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. He's like, learn to know God very well. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. And so this is the wisdom that he's trying to instill in the next generation, the next one who would be king. All right, Worship God with your whole heart. Don't have a divided heart when it comes to your devotion to God. Don't be distracted by the things in this world. And, and one of the reasons he says you should worship God with your whole heart is this. He says, for the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. That when it comes to humanity, God is one who knows not just our outward actions or the ways in which we try to present ourselves in a positive way, in a good light, and to build a good reputation for ourselves, but no, God knows even our motives. God knows our thoughts. He knows everything that's going on in our hearts. He knows when we're selective about how we say things or how we recollect a story of our life experience. 
right? He knows every detail. He knows every purpose for which we might be appearing to do the right thing, but really trying to gain some sense of leverage, right, or future benefit for ourselves. God knows all of these things. And David is telling his son, he's like, listen, you need to seek God. You need to worship God with your entire heart because God knows every human heart. And and David would remember this better than anyone else because the only reason he was ever king of Israel was because God picked the scrawny kid. God picked the shepherd boy, right, who wasn't even called out by his dad to be in the running for who Samuel the prophet should even look upon. And so David knew this was true about God, that God knows the human heart. God works with people based on their heart attitude, and we can't trick God. We can't deceive God in any way. He he continues saying, if you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And so David desperately wants his son to be wise. He wants his son to truly love God and not to just put on a show of religiosity for the sake of the kingdom or for the sake of ceremony because that's what kings do. No, he's like, no, you really need to seek God. You really need to know God. You really need to serve and worship him with all that you are and that this is going to be something that is good for your life. Now, as far as this piece of if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. It's possible David was thinking about the first king of Israel. And we read a little bit about that story and watched a video about uh, King Saul last week. And, and we're going to look at some of those details right now because King Saul had rejected God or some of God's command. And as a result, God removed that king from before him. God had rejected Saul as king. And so David, as this second king of Israel, is passing on his whole kingdom to Solomon, and he's got two things that he's experienced, his own life and what God has done and the life of the king before him. And he's trying to instill wisdom from both of those experiences, right? Fortunately, like in the scriptures, we can learn both from the wisdom of the godly lives that are documented before us, such as the hall of faith, but we can also learn from those who lived wicked lives and did foolish things and learn what not to do, right? That we can learn not just from our own struggles and failures, but we can also learn from the the struggles and failures of other people. And so let's take a look at Samuel's other encounter uh, with King Saul, the first king of Israel, the moment when God rejected him. And what happened was God had given very specific instruction about conquering a city and not keeping any of the riches that the city had to offer that everything was meant to be destroyed. And you might be like, wow, like that's a little bit harsh. And yeah, from our perspective, absolutely, that would seem to be the case. But recall that God is the just judge of all the earth, right? And that whenever he decrees something like this, he's usually given hundreds of years of patience and grace and opportunity for repentance. Okay, that, that's what we've seen as his trend before. But here we go. Uh, in 1 Samuel 15, I'll start at verse 13. And so this is after King Saul goes and destroys some of what was in the city and kept some for himself. And Samuel the prophet shows up. And notice the perceptions of reality here. One is thinking like, I did such a great job. 
and the other is looking at it as the way God looks at that moment. Because what we see and what God sees are two very different things sometimes. And so in verse 13, when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. And so notice the the public presentation that Saul is giving about his actions and his choices. He's like, I do the things that God tells me to. Like, look how great I am at following God's command. And then, verse 14, uh, Samuel says, Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Because in God's command, he said even to to wipe out the animals in this city. Okay? And so now Saul kind of like, well, backpedals a little bit. Verse 15, he's like, "Well, well, it's true. The army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. But they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. And so notice Saul originally presents himself publicly before his men and before the prophet. He's like, hey, good news. I've done everything God commanded me to. When in reality, the prophet calls him on. He's like, no, you didn't. Like, no, you, you partially did what God commanded and instructed. And, and one of the things we learn from this story is that partial obedience is actually disobedience. That Saul was only doing the things that he thought was wise, that he thought was good, and anytime God disagreed with his perception, well, he just disregarded those pieces. But he still liked to present himself as like, I did what the Lord commanded me. So uh, later on in verse 19 in their conversation, Samuel the prophet speaks and says, why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Other translations say, why did you pounce on the plunder? That that once he and his soldiers saw the spoils of this city, they were like, no, no, we're not getting rid of this. Like, that can't be the wise thing to do. We need to keep this for us. Like, God, you must have misheard God. Like, that isn't the thing that we need to do. The right thing to do is to use this city's spoils, use these riches for the sake of our own kingdom. And that's what they chose to do. But what Saul perceived was like, hey, I've done what the Lord commanded. Samuel is saying, no. Why have you disobeyed the Lord? Why have you done even evil in the Lord's sight? And so Saul's perception, or at least what he convinced himself of, or the, the, the facade that he was trying to keep up in front of other people, was completely different than what God was actually seeing in his life. All right? And so he says, I carried out the mission. I did obey the Lord, verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Right? And he wasn't supposed to do that. But other kings would do this. They would have a, a king collection because the more kings that you had that you could show off as saying, look at all these kingdoms that I've conquered, that all these kings now are either imprisoned or serve me, it's evidence of your greatness. But that's not what Saul was supposed to do. Right? He's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this guy because he looks really good on my resume. Right? And, but no, no, no. Like, and so he keeps saying, like, I obeyed the Lord. And uh, that wasn't the case. Verse 21. And he says, And then, after I kept King Agag, my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And so it seems as though in his mind, in his perception, he's still trying to convince himself. 
He's like, no, 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 this was the good thing. This was the wise thing. I am a follower of Yahweh. I am a good Jewish individual, right? I am a good and godly king, but that's not the case, right? He partially obeys, which in reality was disobedience. And even a word used later is rebellion. It was rebellion against God. And the whole time he's convinced himself, no, I've I've done the right thing. But yet it was actually evil in God's sight. So verse 22, Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? All right, that when it comes to pleasing God, we've learned from Hebrews 11 that without faith, without trusting God, it is impossible to please him. But paired with that is also this piece of obedience, right? God is, yes, pleased at sacrifice. He's pleased when we repent of our sin. But right, more than just being pleased at our repentance and turning back to him, more than just being pleased at our, right, prayers of sacrifice, he's more pleased with our obedience, with our actually doing the things he told us to do. And so this is what Samuel is indicating. He's like, which is more pleasing to the Lord? He says, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Verse 23, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as the worshiping of idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. And so we see that originally Saul is saying, I have done the command of the Lord. And Samuel is saying, that's not true. You've rejected the command of the Lord. And so we need to have faith to see as God sees. Because sometimes we act like King Saul, in which we maybe pick and choose the parts of Scripture that we like, We put certain pieces or blessings on bumper stickers and magnets, and we're we're like, I like these things. Or it's like, oh, it's convenient when the scriptures agree with my moral compass, my conscience, but the moment then when it disagrees, right, we just try to ignore those parts, or we only partially obey the things that God instructs, and we want to be like Saul while presenting ourselves as righteous and good. Paul actually talks about this type of behavior as he's writing the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, he says this, and I love the the terminology he uses here. Verse uh, 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So he's writing the church, right? We're, we're the church, right? We're, this is written to people like us. And we're not risking losing our kingdom like King Saul, right? None of us are kings in here, right? But we do still need to aim to, to look to those who are godly examples and to model our lives after them, like Paul, right? And, and we rec- he recognizes that there are those who maybe at one point were, were brothers in name only, who are now, he says, enemies of the cross. And he, he says this with tears. And this is what he describes about those enemies of the cross in verse 19. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, our humble bodies, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so what I like about Paul's language there is he describes those who are enemies of the cross, that their God is their bellies. They, they serve the idol of this belly God, right? They just go after their own desires and cravings and comforts. And that that's something that oftentimes will contrast with the life of a follower of Jesus, all right? That oftentimes our flesh is at war with our spirits, it says in Galatians 5. And so we've got to be attentive. Like, are we going to do the thing that God says is right? Are we going to obey the commands of the Lord? Or are we going to seek after our own desires, our own cravings, and our own appetites? That that's something we must be careful of. In previous parts of this series, we've read in the book of Judges how the people of Israel, they often did what was right in their own sight. And so, Everett, I've got two verses from Judges up there, right? And, and this is a phrase that's used throughout that book, throughout that time, a time before there were kings, right? There was no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, that they did what they felt was right, what they thought was good, what they thought would bring about blessing and prosperity in their lives, and it seemed right to them, and yet in the book of Judges, those batches of generations do some of the most horrendous things that are documented in the scriptures. All right, I probably won't let my kids read the book of Judges for a while, right? <laughs> right? Like, and, and Judges 2.11, and so humans were doing what was right in their eyes, but elsewhere throughout that, that book, it says that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so it demonstrates that there's this disconnect between what we as humans think is right and good and between what God says is right and good, right? That sometimes what humans call good, God calls evil. And that God intends on being a blessing to us, but that's going to include in giving us wisdom and setting boundaries and guardrails where he tells us, right, no, don't go past this point. And it's not because he's a jerk. It's because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. He wants life for you. He doesn't want you to follow the God of your belly and to end in destruction, which is what essentially King Solomon, David's son, the third king of Israel, he writes about in the book of Proverbs. He actually writes this twice in Proverbs 14.12 as well as 16.25, and so Everett's putting that up on the screen. And this is at a stage in his life where he's writing the wisdom of the book of Proverbs to his own son, as he's like, please, like, live wise. Fear the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom. And he's desiring to instill this in his son's life so that when he's gone, his son will make life choices that are for his own good and for God's glory. And so he repeatedly says this. He says, there is a path before each person that seems right, that all might be like, well, I think this is really the best choice for me. But the end of that path is death. And so we've got to make the choice. Are we going to have faith to see as God sees? Are we going to look at our lives and look at reality the way that God describes it in the scriptures? Are we going to submit to his will for our lives? Or are we going to choose the things that we would prefer instead? 
And I, I think this is so worth pointing out because it's so easy to mix those things up where we might be like, no, God must, have, must want me to want these things because I want them, right? And so like, we would tend to want to say that like, oh, no, no, I really love money. And so God must want me to love money. That must be the good thing for me. But no, right? God himself gives commands against covetousness, right? God himself gives instruction against these things that there will frequently be desires that we have that are at odds with God's blessing and prosperity for us. And uh, I, I really like, you know, Saul, uh, King Saul, as he's like talking to Samuel and saying like, no, 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 but I, I did obey God. I did this. I did that. Right. And he's kind of pretending like, no, I did everything I knew I was supposed to. Right. He's presenting as though like, well, maybe I didn't, I didn't know better. Or maybe I, I, you know, I thought this was what God wanted me to do. And in, in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, this prophet, he says this, and I, I think this is terribly telling of, of human nature. He says, uh, Let's see. Oh, no, no, no. It's Proverbs 24 again. Malachi's later. Sorry, ever. There we go. Proverbs 24, 12. So this is King Solomon. A lot of S names today. I'm doing okay so far. Let's see. Don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows that you knew. And he will repay all people as their actions deserve. And right, and so like we can't go before God when we do the wrong thing and be like, well, God, I didn't really know any better. Like maybe in some instances that might be the case. But when we've deceived ourselves, when we've convinced ourselves we've done the command of the Lord, right? God knows your heart, right? God knows exactly what's going on. He knows every little trick and lie that we tell ourselves that we can like try to convince ourselves. No, I'm a good person, right? I obeyed the Lord. I did what was right. That's not always the case. And God knows. Like, our hearts are completely revealed to him. We can't hide from God. Jesus tells it this way. This is in uh, Luke 16. And this is after he tells this parable about this shrewd money manager for this, this, his boss. And he says this in verse 13. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. All right, and so this is one example, right, of a type of sin where we would like to convince ourselves that we could live with one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the world, right? We would like to doubt kind of what Jesus is saying. He's like, really, no one, Jesus? Like, I, th I think I got this. Like, I think I can actually navigate my life well enough that I could serve both God and money. I could serve my own desires and purposes while still obeying the Lord when it really matters. But no, Jesus says no one. No one can serve two masters. And that the Lord that we serve is worthy, as David said, of our whole hearts and our service, right? That, that Jesus is saying that he's worthy of our love and our devotion and our service. That God is worthy of those things. But notice this, verse 14, this is how the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders that rejected Jesus as their Savior, right? This is what they do. They, they dearly loved their money, and they heard all this that Jesus is saying, and they scoffed at him. And so then he, in verse 15, he said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. 
What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. All right, so Jesus gets to these issues as well. All right, that we as humans, we like to appear one way. Like Saul, we like to present, I've done what the Lord's commanded. Like, good day to you. How are you doing, uh, Samuel? Right? Like all this excitement and, and boasting about how great we are. Right? When in reality, it's like, no, no, no. The, God knows your heart. And he doesn't say that in this comforting sense, but it's supposed to produce a degree of like seriousness and repentance in the life of someone who has not brought their sin to Jesus, to the cross. Right? That like we might want to convince ourselves, like, no, I don't really need the forgiveness thing because I'm pretty sure I'm a good person. Right? I've, I've, I've done what is right in my sight. But Jesus says there's many things that this world honors and celebrates and applauds that are actually detestable in God's sight. And so when we come to moments like that in the scripture, we've got to consider, like, okay, am I going to have faith to see reality as God sees it? Or am I going to try to convince my own heart, my own soul, my own mind, like, no, I I think maybe, you know, I could enlighten God a little bit here in the scriptures when I read these things, right? And so Jesus warns us that this is a danger for our hearts, that what we celebrate may be the very things that God detests. And we don't even do it for ourselves, but we even in our relationships with other people. This is the verse from Malachi. Here we go. I knew it was coming, right? But sometimes, not only do we try to recategorize our own sins as good, we try to do it for other people as well because we want people to like us, right? That like when someone comes to us and they're, they're talking to us and engaging us and be like, oh, what does the Bible say about that? Or I know you're a follower of Jesus. What do you think about this issue or this, you know, what, what do you think the scriptures teach? And you might be like, oh no, like they're not going to like me. they're not going to like me if I tell them the truth. No matter how gentle or loving I try to convey this truth, like, they're going to consider me an enemy, even though I love them desperately. And so Malachi, he addresses this. This is the last prophet in the Old Testament. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. All right, like, I don't know about any of you as parents, ever you get weary from, oh my goodness, please, right? You, your kids just wear you out, and that's how God feels about us sometimes. Like, guys, you've worn me out, please, okay, right? You have wearied the Lord with your words. And they're like, how have we wearied you? What? What are you talking about, God? Like, Malachi, that's not what God's saying to us. Why would God be worn out by us? God's thrilled to see me every day, right? Like, come on. And and this is what Malachi says. He says, you have wearied him by saying, all who do evil are good in God's sight. Right? That that you're going around and telling people who are committed to, to wickedness and sin, you're being like, oh, you know what? God thinks you're doing great. Right? You are good in God's sight. And he is pleased with you. All right, and that sort of, of conversational piece where we understand the temptation to be that way, right? We understand the desire because we want to be liked by people who we see in front of us. And we're like, I don't know, maybe I'll just kind of blur this part of the Bible, you know, so I don't have to say the hard thing. But the prophet says that this is the sort of thing that wearies the heart of God. When we tell the person who's uh, committed to doing evil that like, no, no, no God's thrilled. God just wants you to be happy, right? God is pleased with you, in fact, that that's a dangerous road to go on, that the way God sees it and the way that we see it don't always line up, 
And we've got to submit our hearts to him. And now I realize, like, preaching this, it hits my own heart hard. I'm like, man, like, this is tough, right? This is hard, right? Like, Bible, what are you doing to me? God, Holy Spirit, this is difficult to live this way. It, it feels like a challenge. But I want to point out, it's not as though God is trying to make our lives the most difficult possible, all right? God is actually rooting for you. God wants blessing for you. All right, so much so that in Deuteronomy 6, this is what he says. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so all will go well with you. Right, the reason that God wants us to look at reality the way that he looks at it is because he wants our lives to go well. He wants our eternity to go well. He is a God who withholds no good thing from the righteous, it says in the Psalms. Right, that God wants to bless you, and when we choose to rebel against the command of the Lord, we're choosing less than God's best, and maybe the word of God that we reject may be resulting in God rejecting that part of our lives, right? We don't want to do that. God desires to bless his people. And part of the reason he gives these boundaries is for the sake of our flourishing and our thriving. And now when it comes to perception, there's, there's this risk of thinking like, okay, so if I do the right thing, my life will go well, right? Like that's kind of an attractive theology. You'd understand that. That's the kind of doctrine that I grew up with. And, and there's this risk, there's this false interpretation of that, of, of kind of twisting it, or the converse would be the logical phrase, of which you would say, so therefore, anyone whose life appears to be going well, it must be that God is just blessing them, that God is, in fact, pleased with them, that I could take, uh, you know, arrange everyone by, you know, prosperity and financial income or whatever, and I could tell you this, this list, that this is who God loves the most, the, the person who God's pleased with the most, but that's not the case. All right, that is not the case. Oh, you've experienced that, right? Like, so you're, you're pretty sure that's not the case, right? right? And, it, and you're right. David writes about this in Psalm 37, right? David writes about this. He says, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. Like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. All right, that there will be those who appear to have lives that are green and flourishing and colorful like flowers, but yet they've been cut off from the source of life. All right, they've chosen to remove themselves from God's presence and blessing. They've rebelled against God and his goodness. And they look green for a little while, but eventually they're, they're flourishing withers. All right, so there's moments in life in which it may look, according to our human perception, that someone is so blessed and prosperous, but that's not the case. And so we need to see as God sees. We can't be discouraged or envious in moments like that. David goes on to say in verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will help you. All right, so there's times in which it looks like the wicked are prospering, and the end of that life choice is destruction. 
And there's times in which the person who's trying to do the right thing, trying to be committed to the Lord, trusting in the Lord and doing good, in which their life, it doesn't appear to be abundantly blessed for that season. But that doesn't mean that God's abandoned them. And we need to, in moments like that, look at our own lives the way that God looks at them and trust and have faith that He is our help, that He is going to bring about new desires in our heart and bring about the desires that our hearts have that are good and godly in our lives. And so, when someone is blessed, it doesn't always mean that God's favor or pleasure is is looking down on their life. And the contrast is true as well. It sometimes would look like a person who is doing what God has called them to do is experiencing persecution and suffering and difficulty. And you might be like, clearly, right? I mean, the book of Job, right? Clearly that guy's life must just be full of sin that I don't know about because God's allowing that to happen to them. But that's not always the case. And the best example I can give of this is the life of Jesus, the the most and only righteous one to ever walk the earth. And and in his life, Isaiah prophetically speaks about him hundreds of years before he came in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. That as Jesus was dying on the cross, the outward appearance would have been like, that dude did something wrong. Like, I need to figure out what he did so I don't do it because clearly God is not working in that man's life. Right? That's what it looked like. From our perception and all of our thinking and wisdom, we assumed Jesus was somehow accursed because of what was happening in his life. But notice, let's read on. But he was pierced for our rebellion. Right? There's that word. Rebellion is as bad as witchcraft. We read about with Saul. And he was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. In verse 11, when he sees all that he accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. All right, that Jesus in his death on the cross, although it was anguish, resulted in something that brought him great joy. It was the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure the cross, right? That Jesus endured anguish, but now he's not upset about it. He didn't think it was a bad deal, all right? He is satisfied with the choices that he made in his life, that what looked like a curse was actually bringing about blessing and abundance. And it's not only Jesus, but others that will agree. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. God himself says, I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels." And so, notice this, that on the outside it looked like Jesus was cursed, that Jesus was in anguish, that God was displeased, when in reality God is honoring Christ, raising Him up, seating Him at the right hand, and that Jesus is now one who receives worship and forever reigns and is the judge of all the earth. That Jesus is one who is glorified. 
And so we can't look at the cross from our human perspective and our human wisdom and deem it as foolishness or weakness. No, God was accomplishing mighty things. And through what he did, Isaiah told us that those who are rebels and sinners are able to be counted as righteous, counted as holy before God. And that's the last concept that I want to sit on is in Acts 13, Everett, Acts 13, Paul preaches this. There's three verses that I want to hit back to back, all right, about how we can be made right in God's sight. Because, right, it's a terrifying idea of like, oh man, God knows every thought, every motive, everything I've ever done wrong. How could I ever be counted as holy before a holy God, right? I'm done, like I'm guilty, like I can't, I can't win, I'm out. Right? What, what can I do? What could I bring before a holy God that would ever allow me to be in his presence? And this is how it's done. It's in God's sight. Okay? So Acts 13, 38. Brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. And so it's through our belief in Jesus that we who are rebels can be made right in the sight of God, right? When we've done wrong in God's sight, evil in God's sight, when we seek him, trust in him for forgiveness, his mercy is available. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. That the way our rightness with God is established is by believing in him and by having faith in him and what he's done. That's the only way we can be made right in the sight of God. Or then eight verses later, Romans 5, 9, it says, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. And so when it seems like all hope is lost, when I can't hide my sins from God in any way, that he knows every detail about my life, he knows every heart, thought, motive, whatever it might be, and I'm forever going to be classified as a rebel, right? Jesus comes along, bears our sin. He takes our sin that we can be gifted his righteousness. And that God, when he looks on you, he doesn't see a rebel anymore. He sees you as righteous, that in God's sight you are right, that God knows all, God sees all, and he has the authority to actually declare that you're forgiven. And when God says that you are forgiven, it is true. And so we can stand right before God, and we need to have faith to see ourselves as God sees us that we wouldn't look at ourselves and the sin and the rebellion that we've formerly walked in, but we would look at ourselves and realize, no, I'm going to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. I'm going to trust him in the work that he's done. That's the only way I can be right before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are one who rejects the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Lord, there's nothing we can bring to you that would ever make us right on our own merit. 
But God, we trust in your Savior that you provided. We trust in the Lord Jesus that he gave his life, he bore our sin so that we could be made righteous before you, Lord. And so, Lord, let us never bear shame, let us never bear condemnation, because, God, we have been made right in your sight. And if you have spoken it, it is true. If you see it, it is the ultimate reality for all of eternity that we are right before you, God, and we can come boldly before your throne of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.